Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast, where we explore how to center our lives and our leadership in the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. In the midst of the disruptive cultural shockwaves of the 21st century. Join us as we learn to take the love of God seriously as the force that holds all of us and everything together. Gravity Leadership Podcast, or as we call it now, the Gravity Podcast. This is Ben and Christy and yours truly, Matt Hebby. Hey, friends, welcome. Hey there. Hey. We're back again for another podcast. I think uh, I want to share this little uh, tidbit, Christy. I've got a care package with Christmas presents for you. Yay! I've got one for you guys. I'm going to send it today. I'm sending it today as well. It's sitting on my little half wall. Um, as soon as I'm finished here, I'm going to drive my little car over to the little post office and put a little stamp on it and say, please deliver this to Christy Finley. Was the regular sized car being used today? Or is it in the shop? Everything's little. It's an affectionate <laughs> okay. term rather than a descriptive term. And then that means that next week you get to open it up. Well, I'm yes. And I'm hoping, I meant to get it out on Friday, but... Uh, the universe conspired against me. Story of my life. Uh, I I hope it gets there in a week. Like I'm hoping a week will do it. Otherwise, it will be post Christmas package. Yeah. Well, it should you can send it. Yeah, you could. Sh- it should get there in a week. So I've I've heard. So I mean, one thing I've heard is that you can send things like two day priority mail. You know. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I'll see how much that costs, and I'll see I'll see if <laughs> right. the if if I'm dealing with a straight shooter at the post office, yeah, don't, or not. Yeah, don't send it media mail. Definitely not that. No, no, no. Um, well, there's no there's no media in it. Spoiler alert. It's not alert. a book. Okay, all right. Oh, hey. Yeah. Already, spoiler alert. It's no book. The other thing that I heard, I heard a news story that the post office is supposed to be extremely like slower than it was in the 70s this year, um, <laughs> and it largely has to do with policy. Just like policy, the policy, the policy of the head of the post office, um, basically. There's there's a little bit of a conspiracy theory. I don't know. It might be true. I don't know. Ben is that, uh, so we're, we're starting the podcast the, with stories, either a personal story, a something you've read, or a recommendation. Uh-huh. This sounds like something you've read. It is something I've read. And uh, the latest it was, an, it was a news article. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't one of those, but uh, <laughs> it was a repu- It was a news article from a reputable source that um, that basically, yeah, the way that that. That the way that they're they're defunding a lot of the uh, post office um, uh, work and workers, and so it's just going to be super slow. So, well, I'm going to ask my brother. He's a postman. He's he's been doing mm. third shift postman work for for a decade or two. And yeah, he'll, ask him what the yeah what I will. The, what's the policy change? Well, and what's the story on the ground? Like, how do the how do the you know the people who hoof it to deliver our packages and our mail. Like, how do they feel about it? Well, I'd be super curious to hear that. Yeah. 
this fits really well into what I was reading this morning. I'm reading a book called The Big Myth. And mm-hmm. in that book, they're talking about how, um, uh, like, Ronald Reagan uh, appointed somebody to head the EPA, the Environmental mm-hmm. Protection Agency. Um, and that's, back, that's, that's right when, like, climate change was starting to become a national conversation. And at first, mm-hmm. like, uh, companies that contribute to climate change were like, yeah, climate change is awful. And then they pivoted and was like, no, climate change is a hoax. And mm-hmm. part of how, part of how, uh, this, like what you're describing in the post office showed up there was that mm. Ronald Reagan appointed somebody to head the EPA who actually didn't want to see increased regulations with environmental protections. And so the head of the EPA actively worked to stall sort of the implementation of new policies or or not staff certain key things. And so yeah. what these writers point out is part of part of the strategy for for instance uh, like a more limited federal government is to make the government function so poorly that the poor functioning government then is an evidence to that government isn't the answer and so we right. have to defund that even more. Mm-hmm. So Ronald Reagan appoints somebody to head the EPA who wants the EPA to fail. It does poorly regulating certain things. Then that's evidence to show that that the government is uh, incompetent, and then it's funded less. And so, yeah. I, so back when back when Donald Trump appointed a new head to the Postal Service, I think that's the person who's leading it now. Yes, his his explicit justification or those around him was we want to privatize the USPS. Mm-hmm. And so the way to do that is to make the federal branch of the USPS function so poorly right. that it has to be privatized. Right. Yeah. So it's the yeah. same kind of deal. Yeah. It's the same thing. It is. And that's not to it say is. that government functions great all the time if it's properly funded, but it does sure. mean that there's like a concerted effort to make the government perform poorly in certain areas to take things like environmental protection well really off the table <clears throat> because yeah. environmental protection hurts the bottom line of a lot of multi-billion dollar companies right yeah like yeah. you know uh oil companies don't want to protect the environment because that means it hurts their profits right right they have to pay money to do that right yeah. but then like the usps like they the the usps doesn't see this is a okay i'm this is past the story. Now I'm going to go on a rant. Gird up now your ear holes. Soapbox here. Yeah. So the USPS doesn't exist to be profitable. Mm-hmm. It's a service. It's a it's a service provided for the benefit of all of us. Like we're just talking here. It'd be great if Christy got her package in a week, right? Mm-hmm. And and there's this uh, this fundamental misunderstanding about why things like the USPS exist. It, it, yeah. If it makes money, that doesn't mean it's doing its job well. And right. if it doesn't make money, that doesn't mean it's doing its job poorly. It exists right. as a service, and so we shouldn't hold it to market, capitalistic market ideals about whether or not it's succeeding or failing. You know, but we do. But we do. And, mm-hmm. and that's part of the issue. When I talk about mammon and how mammon colonizes our minds, all that matters is if the stock market price, the stock share price, is predicted to go up next quarter over this quarter, and that people like Ben and Chrissy and Matt have consumer confidence in that, but also the shareholders and stakeholders have confidence in that. Yeah. But that doesn't mean at all that 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 company is doing good. Right. 
is good for their employees, is good for the environment or community they're in. It yeah. just means that they're profitable. And profit equals good is how mammon works. Because it's not good. So all yeah. that to say, the same issues that we saw in the EPA in the 80s, when, by the way, 65% of the people said we should do something about environmental impact of businesses, uh -huh. but we didn't. Um, and, and today with the USPS, it's the same thing. It's eroding... Yeah. Eroding government service agencies that are that are created to protect and provide for the people of the United States, so that things can either be shut down or privatized. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I mean, a big part of the goal of that is to make sure that it doesn't help everybody. Like you'll notice, the things that get targeted are the things that help everybody, no matter how much money you have. Like a stamp costs the same amount of money, you know, no matter who you are. And everybody can get mail if you have an address, you know? Hmm. Um, so anyway, Christy, uh, we're on a tight schedule, but we're going on rants and stuff. Christy, we you got to well, go. I, I yeah. don't have a rant though, but I do yeah. have like a thing that I'm going to suggest. Isn't one of the things okay. like, you know. Sure, a recommendation. Recommendation. My recommendation is, um, I don't know about you guys, but we do like Advent reading during Advent with my family. Yeah. And uh, listen, Listeners, I, we're not perfect, so don't think that it's like, you know, mm. Norman Rockwell, perfect little scene, because it's not. <laughs> but I did buy a candle that has like the countdown, like like one, two, three, all the way to 25, and you mm -hmm. like burn the candle until mm -hmm. it gets to the next number. And so we light it, read, pray, and then, of course, there's always like, I want to blow it out, you know, like the thing, except for uh, we left it burning too long and then <laughs> multiple days. But my suggestion is it's actually really fun to kind of like have this countdown candle that we burn. And uh, so that's my little my little tip recommendation. Next year, buy an Advent candle. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Way to mark the time as we approach the celebration of the nativity of our Lord. Yeah. That's right. That's awesome. Very good. Yeah. Cool. All right. <clears throat> well, we need to get into this interview today. We interviewed, um, this is also, I think, an appropriate segue. We interviewed Miguel de la Torre about his book, Reading the Bible from the Margins. Is that what his book is actually called? Yeah. I forgot to look this up before we started. Okay. <clears throat> Reading the Bible from the Margins. It's actually an older book of his um, that we found that just really fits well with this series. Um, and so, um, yeah, it was a great interview. Christy, I don't think you were on this one. No, no. Nope. So I get to listen along with our listeners. Listen along with the listeners. Um, yeah. To the difference that it makes, it makes a tremendous amount of difference. This, this I think is probably one of the primary paradigm shifts slash revolutions for me in uh, understanding how the Bible works. Um, and understanding how we misinterpret um, mm -hmm. Bible scriptures is, um, yeah, just learning to read from the underside of power, learning to read from the margins, um, because for most of my life, I've not been in that position naturally. And so, um, so yeah, it takes some learning for someone like me to, uh, to learn how to do this. And um, a lot of folks who've been helpful for that, and uh, Mr. Mr. Dr. De La Torre, is one of them. So. Mm -hmm. Yes. This has been the single best practice for me to relearn how to read the Bible is to read it from the social location of the people who the Bible was written to. Yeah. And by. <laughs> and by. So it's yeah. just incredible. All right. Well, we should get into it. Let's do it. 
We welcome Reverend Dr. Miguel de la Torre to the podcast today. He's the professor of social ethics and Latinx studies at the Illiff School of Theology in Denver, and he has served as the elected 2012 president of the Society of Christian Ethics and served as the executive officer for the Society of Race, Ethnicity, and Religion. He's a recognized international Fulbright scholar who has taught courses and lectured around the world. In 2020, the American Academy of Religion bestowed on him the Excellence in Teaching Award. The following year, 2021, the American Academy also conferred on him the Martin E. Marty Public Understanding of Religion Award. Uh, Dr. De La Torre is the first scholar to receive the two most prestigious awards presented by his guild and the first Latinx to receive either one of them. Today, he joins us and we're chatting about his book, Reading the Bible from the Margins. Dr. De La Torre, welcome to the Gravity Podcast. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Um, Miguel, tell us a little bit about your faith and spirituality. Um, just in broad brushes here, were you raised Christian? And, and, and if so, how would you maybe name or narrate the way that your faith has grown and changed since then? I was raised um, in a dual religi religious environment. Um, during the day, I went to Catholic school, and I was a good Catholic boy, um, did the, my, my early sacraments. Um, but at night, my family practiced Santeria, which is an Afro-Cuban religion hmm. um, based on the Orishas and, 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 and African deities. Um, so during the day, we had, I had one faith. At night, I had another faith. And in Caribbean culture, that's very common. Um, you could have multiple faith traditions at the same time. Even mm -hmm. though they're contradictory, they gel together. Mm -hmm. um, in my 20s, I became a Southern Baptist, an evangelical Southern Baptist, for very, very deep theological reasons. The young lady I wanted to date would only go out with me if I went to church <laughs> <and> Central. <laughs> so I ended up becoming a Southern Baptist. Um, I always say I'm glad she wasn't waiting for the uh, uh, the spaceship behind the comet, or else I would have really been in trouble. Um, but even after we did not continue our relationship, um, I remained a Southern Baptist. I went to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where I got my Master's in Divinity. Um, and, and then later on in life, um, I began to decolonize this religiosity that I have had. The Southern, you know, I began to realize that this Eurocentric Christianity um, was very intertwined with white supremacy. Uh, so now I find myself um, still consider myself a Christian, but I also am trying to understand Christianity from my social location from my own culture. So concept of Santeria, concept of my Roman Catholicism upbringing continue to now influence um, my, my thoughts about Christianity, even though when I was an evangelical Christian, those things were satanic and had to be done away with. Um, now instead I'm realizing this is part of who I am. Yeah. And how do I understand Christianity from my own social location? Yeah, and that's a probably a really good bridge into your book because the book is about reading the Bible from owning your social location and doing that. But before that happens, I know a lot of our listeners have a very similar story uh, to yours in the sense that they they spent some time in a conservative white evangelical space, 
and then have since left that. Do you remember, were there like one or two seminal moments, you know, like Ebenezer's on that journey that, that were pivotal in shifting your perspective, helping you see things? <laughs> I think the first time something occurred that made me realize that this faith I was claiming had more to do with culture than to do with anything about faith was early on in the church, um, as a young Southern Baptist evangelical, um, I wanted to put together a dance. Now, being Latino, I mean, I came out of my mother's womb doing the salsa. I mean, we, we, we literally, dancing is in my genes. It's part of yeah. what we do. And I remember the, 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 the pastor at the time saying, oh, no, Southern Baptists don't dance. And I went, oh, okay, we don't dance. That's fine. But then later, a few months later, I heard that the church was going to put together a square dance. And I quickly you know, corrected my pastor. No, I thought we don't dance. And his response was, well, square dancing isn't dancing. <laughs> and at, at that moment, I realized yeah. this had nothing to do with faith. It had mm-hmm. to do with culture. Yes. yes. And the same thing happened with alcohol. You know, again, as a Latino, I love, you know, as a Cuban, I love my Cuban rum. But I gave it up because Southern Baptists don't drink until I discovered that the founders of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary had the largest collection of wine um, for the, at the time. And the reason that Southern Baptists stopped drinking is because those Catholics are the ones who drink. Yes. And yes. we want to separate ourselves from them. So I began to, you know, wonder what else exists that I am embracing, un- with, un- with, with no, unquestionably embracing, that has more to do with culture and yeah. less to do with faith. Yes. Yes. Oh, that's great. Those moments, too, uh, are, you look around, Miguel, and, you're, and you think, can't we all see this? Isn't this obvious to everyone? Um, and it's, it's not. And then, so, one of the things that I've discovered is this decolonizing work is really not, uh, it's not warmly received in colonial spaces, right? Um, but your book actually, uh, I mean, that's an example of how you began to learn to see power and, and how it works. Um, I, think, I think you realized this is white culture rather than Christianity, yeah? Yes, absolutely. And, and I should note that this book is about 20 years old. It was one of the first books I've ever published. Mm. And my views have changed somewhat since then. I mean, okay. I've, uh, we all evolve, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and when I wrote the book, um, I really was dealing with um, issues of power and how power influences how the biblical text is interpreted. Um, I, I still like the book. I mean, it's one of my best-selling books uh, because it's, I think, an entry into um, demantling or deconstructing the white supremacy in Christianity. I probably would do it a little differently now, but that doesn't matter. I mean, I think it still serves a purpose for those who are moving away from a very conservative, very yeah. white evangelical setting. And now, a word from a sponsor. The Gravity Podcast is sponsored by the Gravity Formation Course, our 12-month cohort-based training in practical spiritual formation, where you'll learn how to notice how God is already at work in your life so you can participate more fully 
in the life that God shares with us. It is a discipleship process that goes beyond just gaining more knowledge and trying out some new practices. In the Gravity Formation course, we go below the surface of our lives so that we can notice and name our deepest desires in God's presence and to discern how God is at work in those desires to lead us toward holistic flourishing, more transformation, more life, more joy, more love. We've trained hundreds of people from all over the world in this formation framework, and it's helped many people to have a sense of God at work in their lives and learn to be more at home in God's love. If you'd like to learn more, go to gravitycommons.com slash formation. All right, let's get back into our conversation. Yeah, maybe we could talk a little bit about some of the um, questions that this brings up for people. So you 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 argue that there's a way of uh, reading the Bible from the margins, listening to people who aren't in a colonial supremacy frame. Um, and I think there's an anxiety that, that I hear a lot, Miguel, about, well, if we privilege, let's say, a Latino reading of Scripture— then aren't we just uh, changing who's on top, right? Is, isn't, this the, isn't this the danger of uh, just somebody else being in, in charge or in control? Can you describe, help us understand how listening and learning to read the Bible from the margins isn't just changing the supremacy of who's on top and who's on bottom? Yeah, no, and that's a good question because I think all too often we move into that false dichotomy of one person on top and one person on the bottom and, and, and the fear of, of, of switching that. I think it's better to understand that all interpretations of the Bible are contextual. They're rooted to a particular social location. So when I, as a Latino in the United States, read the Bible, I will read things in the text. I would interpret things in the text dramatically different than how an Afri- black African would read the text in, in, in Cape Town, who would also be tremendously different than how an Asian woman in Korea would read the text, which would be a very different context interpretation than a queer person in, in Europe. So all these interpretations are radically different because they're all tied to our particular social location. That means that one interpretation is not superior to another. In other words, one is not on top and the rest are on the bottom. They all are just radically different. So to truly read the Bible from the margin, I have to read the and listen to the interpretations of my siblings in South Africa and Korea and in Europe, which are vastly different than mine, which would challenge my own interpretations as hopefully my interpretations would challenge them, this. Mm. The problem has been is that what has occurred is that the um, subjective Eurocentric interpretation has been made objective for everyone else. Yes. So they, the, the, the Eurocentric white interpretation is the gold standard. It's the truth. It's the correct interpretation. Mm-hmm. And everyone else's is just an interesting perspective. Yeah. And what I'm arguing is that the white Eurocentric interpretation is just another interpretation tied to a particular social location yeah. and a particular people. 
no better and no worse than all these other interpretations. And when we bring all these conversations together, we not only challenge each other, but we learn from each other. So my reading of the biblical text has been radically influenced by reading the works of Korean women, by reading the works of Africans um, in South in, in Cape Town, by reading queer communities in Europe. They've all influenced my reading. So it's not like if we read Latinos, they're going to be on top because there really isn't a top or a bottom. Yeah. 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 yeah there so- is- yeah, there isn't colonialism, though. You know what I mean? Like, like there the isn't su- colonialism. <laughs> in supremacist oh. frames, I think what you're naming, Miguel, and then Ben, I'll, uh, I'd love to hear what you're going to say. Uh, in, in, in a, in a uh, supremacist colonial frame, there is no possibility of appreciating multiple interpretations without one of them being right. Correct. And, or, or the standard or the... Right the approved version, right? And what you're saying is we actually need a new, a consciousness shift yes. out of that colonial frame. Yeah. And also a consciousness shift out of a white, uh, Eurocentric way of doing reasoning. In other words, most mm. of us reason in a Eurocentric Kantian type of manner in where if I'm right, you're wrong. Right. There could only be one truth mm-hmm. and one lie. Very, very, uh, very, uh, very way, the, the, the economy way of, of, of seeing the world. Yeah. Coming from the Caribbean, as I said earlier, I could be, a, I could be involved in Santeria mm-hmm. and Catholicism and still be a Southern Baptist. <laughs> All three radically different faith tradition, but right. each one has something to teach me. And right. each one contributes to my identity. Yeah. Um, how, how do we live in a world where opposing views can both be correct and at right. the same time both be wrong? Right. And, and I think that's the beauty of, 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 of listening to all these different voices yes, because it constantly challenges us to think in new ways. Yeah. Yeah. That's really helpful. And that was kind of, uh, I was going to highlight that, that I think that's a really important um, aspect of this. Um, that, that part of the goal of reading the Bible from the margins again, is not just to figure out, Oh, we've been doing it wrong and now we're going to do it right. It's, it's more saying, no, the paradigm shift is, uh, we've had one perspective that we've thought was supreme, um, that we've thought was correct, and we need to open up, you know, our consciousness a little bit. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. So maybe we could take that one step further. Um, you know, you're talking about listening to different voices out there in addition to kind of my own perspective, but even within our own perspectives, um, you talk about the reality of multiple consciousnesses, <laughs> Um in reading scripture. And I'm wondering if you can talk about what that is and how each of us maybe has to do work for ourselves to excavate our own multiple consciousness. Even within myself, there's multiple consciousnesses. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that. Sure. So, so let me approach that by two ways. Let me talk about communal and then we'll talk about the individual. Um, One of the problems with your centric Christian thought 
is this um, emphasis on hyper-individuality. In other words, Jesus is my personal savior who has a plan for my life. And it's me and Jesus against the world. I mean, all I need is the Bible and Jesus and that's it. And there was this, you know, this very individualistic understanding of Christianity. Um, and, And this has been you know, uh, sociologists has pointed this out over the decades, so this is not something new. The Christianity practiced by minoritized communities in the States and as well as individuals in the global South is more communal. It's the coming together. So the idea of me being saved and everyone else in my family burning in hell because they didn't accept Jesus Christ the way I accepted Jesus Christ it's, it's not only falling to the biblical text, it's also just falling to our communities. Um, we are saved as a community, as a people. Um, so um, what that does is that it makes any type of interpretation of the biblical text communal. For me to read the Bible and decide what the truth is and then impose that on everybody else is really blasphemous. Hmm. So um, how then as an individual, do I begin to learn the multiple multiple facets of faith from a community? But then you have the problem that most likely the community is gonna be homogeneous. It's gonna all be the same people, type of people. So, you know, and, and again, we don't have the structure or the trust to really have multicultural, multi-ethnic communities. Um, so, so how do we overcome that challenge? And, and, and for me, what, what becomes important is that we in my community have to read the writings of African-Americans, of Asians, of Africans, of, of, of the queer community, of feminists, of, 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 of Muslims, of, of people who do not look like me, who are not part of my community, who are not the people I, I, I normally engage in a faith community. And by doing that, I bring their voices into our space. And that's how we begin to get challenged. And hence, that's how I was able to write a book on reading the Bible from the margin and bring in all these voices that are not part of my particular community. Yeah. Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about what this the what typifies the margins. You name a few isms, right? Mm-hmm. But let's talk about maybe um, racism and classism. Uh, I think we've spoken a lot on our podcast about how uh, racism impacts our exegesis. So I think a lot of people have begun, at least in our audience, to reckon with, uh, for instance, how white supremacy impacts uh, readings of scripture. But I, I wonder, um, one of the eye-opening realizations for me in the last five years is how differently the Bible um, and marginalized communities are able to read the scriptures when it comes to wealth and affluence. Mm-hmm. Um, could you share maybe one or two examples about how uh, class impacts our way of reading scripture and maybe puts wealthy people at a disadvantage even yeah. when reading scripture? So, so early on in the book, I think I use a, a particular story that was recounted by um, a historian named Justo Gonzalez, who, who talks about going to a church um, in where the pastor was ministering 
to Latino migrant workers, many of them undocumented. And he began by saying, uh, by reading the scripture, um, six days you shall work, but on the seventh you shall not, you shall keep it a Sabbath unto the Lord. Now, most of us would probably um, say that keeping the Sabbath is important because, um, number one, uh, we need to obey God, and that's what God commanded. Number two, it gives us time to be with our family and, 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 and therefore have uh, build relationship. And, and number three, it allows the body to rest, and this way we have more energy. And that's a very typical middle-class interpretation. Because what the pastor did instead was he asked, how many of you were able to find work in the last five days? And a few hands went up. How many found work for six days and less hands went up? And then he asked, what does this say about our society that um, prevents us from keeping the, uh, the Bible's command, six days you shall work? So the privilege of middle class assume we're going to have a job. Right. It assumes we work. And yeah. because we work, and we probably work very hard, we look forward to a day of not having to work. Mm -hmm. And again, that's a privilege. Right. But when this pastor spoke to undocumented immigrants, for them, what was important was finding a day, I mean, finding work for six days so they could feed their family. And to read the Bible through the eyes of middle-class privilege would um, uh, prevent us yeah. from maybe seeing what the text really dealt with. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a move um, that I'm becoming more and more familiar with. We, we interviewed somebody. We actually talk about this guy a lot. Um, what was the guy's name who wrote, It's Not You, It's Everything? Remember that guy? Oh, yeah, yeah Eric Minton. Minton. Yeah. Anyway, he wrote a he wrote a book. It, it's called "It's Not You, It's Everything," and it basically just it just it just talks about. I, I think it's very easy for us in kind of white middle class um, environments to pathologize the individual rather than the society the individual has to live in, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you're not keeping a Sabbath, it's an individual problem. You're you're a workaholic, or you're you're addicted to your work, or that kind of thing, rather than. <laughs> You know, well, it's a sick society that, you know, these people have to work seven days a week just to, just to make ends meet, you know what I mean? Just to survive. Right. Um, and he was, he was pointing that out in a lot of other areas, you know, anxiety and depression, for example, like that is oftentimes moralized and individualized rather than saying, man, like we've, we've got a sick society mm -hmm. that actually cultivates anxiety and depression because it, it, it robs people of their, um, you know, just their ability to flourish in the world and, and have a sense of purpose, you know, and so. And that's a good example of, 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 of reading the Bible through a lens of individuality and reading the Bible as a communal adventure. Right. Yes. We'll be right back. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off 
my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Let's get back to the show. I wonder maybe if if you could off, offer some real-time reflections, uh, Miguel, on the uh, situation that's been going on in Israel and Palestine. And a lot of the kind of white Western Christian circles, we see uh, white Christians rejoicing that revelation is coming true or blanket statements of support for um, Israel. This is a big, big deal for a lot of white Western Christians, um, just a, a carte blanche support of Israel. What, um, what, could a, what could a reading of scripture from the margins help us see in this conflict that otherwise we would miss? No. It's interesting because I literally flew out of Tel Aviv airport the day before hostilities broke out. Oh, my gosh. Goodness, wow. Um, I was there mostly in Palestine um, doing research and and, and giving lectures. So, um, and and I just wrote an op-ed that got published on Monday on on all this. Um, But but going to, to your question, what can reading the Bible from the margin tell us about what's happening there? Um, as we know in the book of Joshua, um, God pro- uh, provides a promised land for God's people who were oppressed, who were uh, enslaved in Egypt. So the oppressed are given a promised land. And all too often we see that as the God of liberation. Isn't this fantastic? But what my indigenous colleagues have pointed out to me is that what is a blessing to the Hebrews entering the promised land was genocide for the indigenous people of the land. Um, That way of, 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 of seeing obviously was used when Europeans came to the Western Hemisphere and genocide of people because they saw this as their promised land. That way of seeing and reading the scripture justified Africanus to go to South Africa and impose an apartheid system because that was their promised land. And this is the same colonial spiritual justification that we are seeing with European Jews going to Palestine and colonizing that land and developing an apartheid system. Um, I've seen that apartheid system up close and personal. Um, I've seen the horrors that Palestinians go through. But at the same time, I'm not justifying the war I'm not justifying the violence. I'm not justifying the killings. I am basically realizing that killing is occurring 
on both sides for the last 70 years because of land theft, um, which makes it difficult to call a holy land holy if it's based on land theft. Mm. So I'm not saying, you know, I'm, I'm not in no way justifying the violence, but what I am saying is we have to understand why there is violence. Yeah. And I think the reason we have this violence is because of an erroneous understanding of Joshua that caused for genocide. And because of that erroneous uh, reading and understanding, we then turn around and are afraid to criticize a secular government for fear of being accused of being anti-Semitic. Yeah. And, and, and here's the thing. I'm Cuban, and I criticize the Cuban government. That doesn't make me anti-Cuban. Yes. This it is such an important me, point, Miguel. Yeah. I, 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 you know, I criticize <laughs> secular governments who are searching for power. Yes. Um, and, and I think we especially who are Christians or even who are are not Christians, need not to fall into the trap that criticizing the secular government for its oppressive actions does not make you anti-Semitic. Any more than me criticizing the United States, which I do often, (laughs) does not make me anti-American. Yes. Even that... Even that label or that allegation, right, is used, I think, in a colonial way to police and gatekeep and yes. solidify power, right? I mean, I, Ben and I ran into this. We've, we were in a denomination that was mishandling sexual abuse uh, investigations. And in advocating for survivors, uh, the powers that be in the denomination considered us anti that denomination, Yeah. right? Um, same thing with being a pastor. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when we criticize pastor abuse— we're not anti-pastors, right? Like, right. if you criticize uh, domestic violence, you're not anti-husbands. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it's yeah. just... No, I, I, yeah. and, and, and it's not to say that there is anti-Semitism. And anti-Semitism true. is rising in this country. Yes. That's true. And it That's is true. a danger. And, I'm, and I stand with my Jewish siblings against mm-hmm. anti-Semitism as is being expressed in yes. this country, in France, in Europe, and other parts yes. of the world. Yes. But criticizing a secular government is not anti-Semitism. And I think, I think the fight against anti-Semitism suffers when we fuse and confuse yes. what is the real anti-Semitism with just criticizing secular governments. Yes. Yeah, I'm reminded of that James Baldwin quote. um, I love America more than any other country in the world. And exactly for this reason, I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, Miguel, you you mentioned this uh, this op-ed that you wrote. I wonder as we're winding down now, I know you've written a lot of other things. Uh, What are you working on now? Where is your study, even in Palestine before you returned, where's your study taking you these days? Mm. I have a couple of book projects that I'm working with. Um, um, matter of fact, uh, Mitri Gharib, who is um, uh, a Palestinian uh, Christian, and I uh, f- 
working on an edited book called Tear Down These Walls, hmm. and where we're comparing the different walls built throughout the world that uh, create op- oppression and apartheid. So that's a project that we are presently working on. Um, there is another project that I'm working on, which I'm, I'm, I'm entering with great uh, trepidation. And that is, um, the thesis question is, can Christian engage in violence for the sake of liberation? Yeah. I mean, we assume pacifism. And yet, I'm not quite sure that's what Jesus really called for when he told his disciples to sell their cloak and buy a sword, which is today the same as, you know, sell your cloak and buy a gun. Um, That bothers me. And I say trepidation because I'm really bothered by this. Yeah. I'm influenced by um, what Cesar Chavez said. I am not a nonviolent man. I'm a violent man trying to be nonviolent. Yeah. And I really am a violent man working to be nonviolent. <laughs> but at the same time, I want to wrestle with, with this assumption yeah. that pacifism is automatically Christian. And I'm not quite sure that's true. Um, I don't know what the answer is. That's the beauty about beginning a writing project. You don't always know where you're going to end up. Hmm. But that's the the path I seem to be on right now. Yeah. Yeah, you know, um, first of all, I really love that approach, uh, Miguel, this sort of willingness to not know where you're going to end up and you're, you know, just exploring, you know, uh, with a a truly open mind, it sounds like. Um, I'm also reminded of... um, uh, Ennio Morricone, um, no, he wrote the soundtrack. What's the, what's the, oh, The Mission. You guys ever seen that movie? Yes, um, yes. The I'll, Mission, it feels like that, I, I'm, I'm vague on the details, but it feels like it wrestles with that, right? Because there's two priests and one of them decides to engage in the armed conflict um, and the other one uh, decides to sort of remain in uh, kind of a pacifist um, right. position um, and eventually is, I think, killed. Mm-hmm. Um, at some point, but anyway, um, I, I always found that movie to be a fascinating exploration of those those yeah. very issues, you know. Yeah. And in real life, you had Camino Torres, who was a priest in Colombia, mm-hmm. who you know uh, hung up his uh, his collar and went mm-hmm. to be with the guerrillas who were fighting against the government. Interesting. And he ended up being killed immediately. So, mm-hmm. in Camino Torres' argument was, you know, why is he providing communion? for the generals of oppression yeah. and not to the people fighting against that oppression. Yes. Um, and and again, I'm not saying he was right or he was wrong. I don't know. That's yeah. why I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this, uh, at this writing project. I, but, yes. but, but I think it's something that we really need to struggle with and not just yes. have pat answers as to um, what the, you know, what, 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 what the end result is. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's exciting, Miguel. I, just from our neck of the woods in Christianity, there's a, a real allergy or reticence to be anything but nice. Mm. Um, and, and so we, as you may be white Christians, need to recover the resiliency of what it looks like to oppose injustice in a way that doesn't just try to uh, be nice to injustice and hoping that it will stop. Yeah. You know. Um, your book, again, Reading the Bible from the Margins, uh, Reverend Dr. De La Torre, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here.
Um, I like I like Miguel, the Reverend Doctor Miguel mm-hmm. Miguel Torre. Mm-hmm. It was fun. That was a good interview. It was fun. Yeah, he's. Uh, this isn't the first book of his I've I've read, um, and he's mm-hmm. really helped and challenged me in ways that um, were necessary. I mean, I, I kept I kept yeah. looking for voices that would scratch the itches that I felt, and uh, he was one of them. I mm-hmm. I notice uh, this this anxiety that I I wanted to press into a little bit. Maybe it's worth discussing now. Of you know, if you go from this one authorized standard approved interpretation of Eurocentric white, you know, male kind of thing. And then you have a diversity of voices, indigenous voices. And, you know, he mentioned Korean women and et cetera, et cetera. Like, and they all are different. Some of them are contradictory. I think there's an existential anxiety of how do I know what's true? How do I know what's right? Yes. And I, I think I want to say two things. I want to say, I think that's an important question, but I also think that's a question that arises out of a Eurocentric paradigm. Yeah. Out of a, it's it's a question in a colonial paradigm that, for instance, isn't as there isn't the existential anxiety about that when you read Jewish rabbis discussing scriptures, mm-hmm. right? So, so the entire, for instance, the entire uh, Mishnah is full with competing, contradictory interpretations, but yeah. they're all included in. Yeah. In the teachings, the official teachings. Yeah. Yeah. And you can, there's like a different consciousness where you can think that somebody's interpretation is very wrong, right? I mean, this is kind of how they argued with each other. Yeah. Like you can think that somebody's interpretation is very wrong, but the the thing that's not present is the anxiety that you mentioned about like, well, who's right then? It's like, well, we can argue about it. And I can appreciate the fact that you have the interpretation you have, but there's this openness to, I don't know what it is. I think there's, there's some kind of paradigm shift, Matt, I think that has to happen for us. I mean, people coming, us meaning like people coming out of a colonial yeah. supremacist kind of mindset. Yeah. There's some kind of shift that has to happen. And maybe the way to name it is just like, like it's not that big of a deal to be wrong about something. <laughs> You You shut your mouth. (laughs) Did that trigger your anxiety, Matt? No, no, but you know, I happen to know, Ben, you're wrong. (laughs) No, but I think, I think that might, that might name it, you know, um, you know, where it's just like, you know, if you're wrong about a point of theology or, or how to interpret a certain story in the old Testament, like you're not going to be sent to hell. You're just going to be gently corrected <laughs> eventually. You know what I mean? Like, even if you're like terribly, terribly wrong about it, like, yeah. I don't know, maybe that's where the anxiety comes from is people feel like we've set up a system where it's like, you have to believe the right things about God or eternal conscious torment awaits you. Mm. Maybe, I mean, that, that's anxiety inducing. Jeez, I mm. better get this right. Mm. So I don't know, maybe that's part of the paradigm shift. Yeah, that is. I think it goes deeper than that. I mean, there's a the, the way the whole philosophical seedbed of our culture is mm-hmm. rooted in uh kind of a rationalistic enlightenment, like right, wrong, binary kind of thing. And I we, we don't do very well with ambiguity, with complexity, with tension, with disagreement and conflict. I mean, I named a little bit about that niceness impulse. Like we want to we want to smooth everything over rather than deal with the fact that 
this doesn't make sense. This doesn't line up. Yeah. I don't like yeah. this. I disagree. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, because it, it, yeah, so I think I, I think we we worry about we worry about what it means maybe eternally. You know, maybe that's part of the anxiety. But you're also saying temporally, like for here and now. Yeah, we also worry about it. There's anxiety because, um, yeah, we don't know how to exist in that tension of not yeah. knowing for sure. You know how to interpret something. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think that I, that it prevents us from listening, from changing, from growing. Yeah. Uh, you know. Yeah. So maybe it comes back to being wrong and dealing with our own uh need to like anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we solved that. Yeah, thank thank goodness. Thank goodness. You're welcome, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> I, I was just gonna say, because part of it, the other thing I was struck by um, one of the things that he was talking about, you know, he's talking about the, um, uh, the Israeli Hamas mm-hmm. and we're recording this, you know, just right after the, that um, happened. It, what's it been a couple of weeks, just a week. Mm. I can't remember, but yeah. Um, so anyway, so it's all, it's all very new. By the time we release this, um, you know, new things will have happened, but um, what was I going to say? Oh, because like the way that we interpret scripture, like being wrong about it, I think we're worried about staying in charge, like you're saying. And I think we're worried sometimes about the eternal consequences of it. But it it is like misinterpreting scripture is a big deal because in, in the way that he was talking about it, where we've misinterpreted and he called it an erroneous interpretation of the book of Joshua mm-hmm. that has justified colonialism oh, yeah. yep. and supremacy for for hundreds of years, right? And that same instinct was at work in the founding of America. The same instinct was at work in, you know, founding the state of Israel. That same instinct, you know, was at work in every place that apartheid has been, you know, uh, established. Um, so anyway, <laughs> I can hear you tapping on your keyboard. Can you it's really, hear me tapping? It's super, it's super loud. That's crazy. Well, yeah. all right. We should probably get out in so I can tap. I, I need to tap on my keyboard now. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I can, I can tell. So yeah, I got problems um, with my microphone. Yeah. Yeah. Um. All right. Well, it's probably good enough then. <laughs> One more thing, Ben. Uh huh. What do you call a sleepwalking nun? Uh, I don't know. A Roman Catholic. A Roman Catholic. Nice. Nice. That's what you had to tippy tap, tippy tap on your uh, keyboard, wasn't it? Well, you had to load up your dad joke uh, archive. The old Matt will keep his secrets. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Go ahead then. Keep your secrets. <laughs>Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you're finding it helpful, we'd love it if you tell your friends about it. Ratings and reviews online also help others find the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles that we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. Our show is produced by Ben Sturkey and Matt Tebby. Aaron Sturkey edits and mixes the podcast. You can check out his work at AaronSturkey.com. We'd love to hear from you. 
to record a question or comment for us, go to gravityleadership.com slash message and click the Start Recording button. You can also email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.